So, are you ready? Right? That, the, the trailer that we just watched was uh, for a, a movie, it's about a three-year-old movie now, um, called Left Behind, which was a movie that was made out of the first book in a 16-book series written by uh, an evangelical pastor named Tim LaHaye and an evangelical novelist named Jerry Jenkins who teamed up to try and capture in story form, in, in a narrative format, their understanding of what Jesus and the New Testament teach about the end of human history, about what happens when Jesus returns. And in uh, Tim LaHaye's theology, Jerry Jenkins' theology, and the theology of a lot of uh, evangelical Christians for the last 200 years, that when Jesus returns to earth, he is going to rapture away from the earth all of those people who have put their faith in Christ and who have been living faithfully for Jesus. So you get those pictures in the trailer about, you know, outfits left behind and still buckled into an airline seat and cars that don't have drivers because they vanished and so on. You get all this, this picture of all these people who have been raptured away from earth, who have gone to be with Jesus for eternity, and everyone else has been left behind to kind of ride out the last days uh, on this planet, which is falling under the judgment um, of God. Um, it's a, uh, it's a, popular theology in evangelical circles. It's, it's not the way I read the New Testament. But one thing I appreciate so much about this vision of the end uh, represented by the Left Behind series is the, the degree to which being ready is a central focus. In this theology, people are taught to be ready for the return of Christ. In fact, uh, about a month ago, I was uh, scouring the internet, doing some research for this uh, uh, series, and I found a website called raptureready.com, a, a website devoted to helping people prepare for the rapture. And, uh, and one of the things on the website, and, and kind of a central feature to the way these uh, Christians think about being ready, was this rapture index. Pretty much what it was, was there were, there were 45 different indices that were all ranked on a scale from zero to five that indicated, like all of these uh, indices were correlated to things that they felt the Bible taught would be happening just before Christ returned. And so the rise of crime, the rise of, you know, the worship of Satan and the, the you know, all sorts of the rise of Russia and all sorts of different things that, that they believe the Bible teaches about what will be going on in the world before Jesus returns. And they've ranked them all on this scale and you add up all the scales and, and you come up with this index. Uh, last time I looked, it was 184 um, the way they describe this index, they say it's kind of like a speedometer about, of how fast human history is hurtling towards the return of Christ. And 160 is called fasten your seatbelts, 160 and above. And so in the, in the viewpoint of raptureready.com, we are hurtling towards the return of Christ based on the signs that can be seen in the world. This is the, what it means to be ready is to be watching for the signs of the end. 
Which the reason all of that is interesting to me is because it ties directly into the passage that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 24 verse 36 and following. Where the disciples ask Jesus, what will be the sign that you are about to return? This is our third week in the series. And in the first week, I just kind of gave us a general overview of the, uh, of the entire passage. And last week, we talked about um, what it looks like to live your faith when life is hard, when others are making faith hard, when the world is making it hard to be a person of faith. And we talked about, you know, keeping calm and carrying on, exercising discernment and stoking the fires of love and those sorts of realities as as kind of the answer in this in this series the first uh last week and this week are the the answers to the disciples two questions that they asked Jesus you know um when will the end come or when will these things happen and what will be the sign of the coming of the end and the passage that we're going to look at this morning Jesus answers the question about what will be the sign. A question that has, that has dominated the church, especially, like I say, in the last 200 years, where in this rapture theology, people have been very interested in what biblical prophecy says about the return of Christ and how that relates uh, to the events going on in our world. But what's interesting is that that impulse is actually not new in the community of faith. Back in the first century, Jewish rabbis were getting frustrated with, uh, with people in their culture who were trying to figure out when the Messiah would come. A few hundred years earlier, a prophet named Daniel had said, in 490 years, God will send the Messiah and the kingdom of God will begin to come to earth. And um, the problem with Daniel was he never said, starting now, and so everybody in the first century, about 490 years later, we're trying to do the math to figure out what are the signs and, and when will the Messiah come and when will the kingdom of God emerge on earth? When will God begin to intervene in human history and rescue us from oppression and injustice and sin and pain and brokenness? And, and, and so everybody was trying to figure it out and the rabbi said, listen, nobody's going to figure it out. And in fact, one rabbi went so far as to say, those kinds of calculations will not be included in the kingdom of God. Basically, if you're trying to do the math on this, you're barking up the wrong tree and wandering away from God and, and all this. And what's interesting is that Jesus in Matthew 24, 36 is of exactly the same mindset. The disciples' question is, what will be the sign that you are about to return and Jesus says this in verse 36, but about that day or hour, when Jesus says that day, um, he's using language from the Jewish scriptures. They would talk about the day of the Lord or that day. And that was the day when God would intervene and rescue the Jews from oppression and injustice and save the world from pain and, and brokenness and sin and wickedness and so on. He's talking about the day that the Messiah would come. He says about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus says, listen, there, there's no way you're going to know. You're not going to figure this out. He said, the angels in heaven who stand around the throne of God, God hasn't even told them when it's going to happen. He says, the Son doesn't know. 
referring to himself. He's often called himself the, the son of man, the Messiah. He says, not even I know. I mean, what Jesus is basically saying is, look, the angels and me, we're like the major players in what God is going to do in the world. We're the central cast in this drama. And we don't even know when the curtain's going to go up. And so if we don't even know the day or the hour, what makes you think you're going to ever know? That you're going to be able to figure it out? In, in effect, what Jesus is saying is stop trying. Stop trying to figure it out. Stop guessing when it's going to happen. Stop reading the newspaper, wondering whether it's fulfilling biblical prophecy. You'll never, ever figure it out. Stop trying to be smarter than Jesus. Because that's not the point. He he goes on to say this in, in verse 37. He illustrates his point that no one will know by using an illustration uh, from the Jewish scriptures. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, um, even if you didn't grow up in the church, I trust that you have played with enough children's toys in your day to, to get a sense for the story of Noah. It's the one with the old man uh, and the toy boat that's filled with animals. Um, in the Jewish scriptures, the story is told. And some people feel that it's literal history and some people don't. But the story is told that God came to a man named Noah in the, in the far ancient past and said, you know what, Noah, I'm very troubled by the amount of wickedness and injustice and greed that's going on in the world. And um, I want to send a flood just to kind of wash the world clean, to wash away all of the wickedness and those who have devoted their lives to propagating wickedness and injustice and so on. But I want to save you because you've loved me. So you and your family, you build a boat and gather two of every kind of animal on the boat and you'll be saved from the flood. And when the flood waters recede, you know, you can begin to repopulate the earth with people who who like love me and who will obey me and so on. And Jesus, thinking back to that story, says when, when, the, when I come again, it's going to be a bit like that. Verse 38, he says, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says, it'll be exactly the way it was in the days of Noah, where people were just going about the regular business of their lives. It was just business as usual. People eating and, and drinking and going to weddings and kind of doing the things that make life fun. Um, doing their best to make the best of life. Eating with friends, because no one in the ancient world ate by themselves. They didn't have TV and they didn't have drive-through. So you always, have to, you always had to eat with other people. And they, were, they were having meals with their friends and family and they were going to parties and they were doing their best to make life, make the best of life. In fact, it's interesting that all those verbs are ING verbs, kind of in, implying just the ongoing rhythms of ordinary life. And all of a sudden, Jesus said they had no idea it was coming until boom, the flood just happened. I said, that's the way it's going to be. People are just going to be going on with the regular rhythm of their life. And then without warning, the Messiah will return with, with no signs, no warning. Um, it's interesting, the example of the flood, we've had a season 
uh, of extreme weather ourselves this fall. I mean, not us, but, but in our hemisphere with earthquakes and hurricanes. And Jesus, I think, would say his coming is a lot less like the hurricanes. See, the hurricanes we can track. We see them coming days in advance. We follow their progress along the Atlantic Ocean. We watch them build. We measure their categories. We predict where they will make landfall and when they will make landfall. We anticipate the amount of precipitation they will dump. We project the amount of flooding that will ensue. We make preparations in advance. We board up houses and we evacuate major centers. And we we have this warning in advance that it's going to happen. Jesus would say, my coming is less like that. It's more like the earthquakes that have ravaged Mexico. I mean, these things just have been heartbreaking to watch from this distance. Where all of a sudden, one night, in the middle of the night, or in the middle of the day, a bunch of kids just going to school, and all of a sudden, this massive earthquake, and lives are lost with no warning whatsoever. Jesus says, it's going to be that kind of cataclysmic event with absolutely no warning. In fact, he extends this metaphor of people doing the regular things of life. He says this, verse 40, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, and one will be taken and the other left. He says people will not just be eating and drinking and going to parties and stuff. They'll just be going about their jobs. Two guys working in a field doing the daily chores of what it meant to be a a farmer in an agrarian society plowing and sowing and reaping and weeding and whatever they're just two guys working out in a field two women a mother and a daughter I've, I've got a picture of two women grinding grain into flour this is how they would have done it in the ancient world just a mother daughter or sisters or two slaves working this hand mill together, grinding the grain into flour, and all of a sudden it'll happen. And Jesus says, one will be taken and the other left. Now, among um, evangelicals who subscribe to, to a rapture theology, this word taken seems to suggest that they are removed. The ones that Jesus is saving are taken and the other ones are left behind. I think this passage tells us the exact opposite. That in the verse just before, it said the flood came and took them all away. And now in this verse, people are taken. In this passage, to be taken is to experience judgment. But it doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point of the passage is Jesus saying, look, two identical people in all respects who are otherwise exactly like each other will be going through the rhythms of life and one will experience salvation and one will experience judgment. Just like that. That the the ones who were ready for the return of the Messiah will be saved. And the ones who weren't ready will miss out on the kingdom of God that is coming. In the whole rest of this passage, Jesus devotes to talking about what it means to be ready. He says in verse 42, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day Your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. 
So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus says you have to be watchful. You have to be ready. You have to be vigilant. And he uses this example. He says, imagine that your friend uh, is storing his valuables in his home. In the ancient world, there were really three main ways to store your wealth. In, in gold, in grain, and in garments, in clothes. Those were the three things that appreciated in value. And so those were the three investments that people would make. But in the ancient world, there were no banks. There were no safety deposit boxes. You couldn't liquidate your assets and invest it in a hedge fund. You basically had to buy these items as ways of storing your wealth and then keep them in your home, which meant you were always vulnerable to thieves who would break in and steal. Right, but the thieves would always break in, obviously unannounced, and they would do it in the middle of the night. Because, the, see, the problem for a thief is that um, there is always somebody all day long. There are always people around the home. You can't get into the house to take the items during the day. You have to come at night when no one can see you coming. And when everybody's asleep, nobody's paying attention. And you quietly dig your way through the mud wall of their Palestinian home. And then you reach in and you grab the items and you run away. And when the family wakes up in the morning, there's a big hole in the wall and their items are gone and they know they've been robbed. And Jesus says, now, if the owner knew what time the thief was coming, well, it would be a different story. He'd stand there with the frying pan, just waiting for that head to pop through the hole and then kapow, right? But he says the owner doesn't know. So if he doesn't want to be robbed, he's got to stay vigilant. He's got to be watchful. He's got to live in this state of red alert all the time because he never knows when the thief is coming. When, when I was little, my brothers and I used to walk home from school, from the bus stop, and uh, we used to come home every day to an empty house. We had to wait at home by ourselves until our parents got home from work because we were latchkey kids was what we were called back in the day. Uh, and we had to be at home alone because our parents didn't love us uh, as much as I love my kids. Um, and so we would do this every day. And I remember one day, it was really weird. We came home, we got to the man door, the side door in the garage where we would unlock and let ourselves in, except the man door was wide open, which was odd. The man door was never open. It was always closed and locked. So we walked into the garage and what was weirder was that the man door into the house was also open, but it was hanging off of its hinges which was kind of bizarre because I had never really known my mom to be the kind of person who just kicks in a door when she forgets her keys. That wasn't like my, my mom. But I was a little kid. I really didn't think much of it. So I just kind of walked into the house and I started yelling for my mom. Hello, mom, are you home? Where are you? And I, I walked in about, you know, eight, 10 feet and I was yelling and nobody answered. And I said to my brother, I don't think she's home. And my younger brother said, I think we should go to the neighbors. And so we did. And the neighbor, we told them what happened. And the neighbors called the cops. And the cops came. And of course, we had been broken into. And the police said, 
that when they searched the house, they found the fireplace poker had been removed from the hearth and it was sitting on a chair about five feet away, right around the corner from where I had been standing and yelling for the mom. The police officer figured when I came in the house and started yelling, the, the, the burglar grabbed the fireplace poker and started to move in my direction uh, and then decided that bashing in the head of a 10-year-old probably doesn't look good on his next job application, so he left out the back. But the whole point is, if we had been vigilant, if I'd been paying attention, I, would have, uh, I wouldn't have walked in the house. If, in fact, if we as a family had been vigilant, if we had an alarm system, if we had been having our house being watched, we would have never been broken into it all. And Jesus' point is this, when you live with the constant awareness that he could come back at any time, it changes the way that you live, right? You, he says, be watchful, kind of, you know, be like a, like a, a security guard at, on the night shift. You've got to be in this constant state of vigilance and watchfulness. But what he doesn't mean is like raptureready.com. He doesn't mean be watching for the signs that will tell you I'm about to return because uh, Jesus says there'll be no signs. There'll be no warning. There'll be no way to know. I don't know. You don't know. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is we have to learn to live in a state of constant spiritual vigilance over our own lives. We have to be constantly morally and spiritually awake and alert. We have to be consistently committed to living the life that Jesus has called us to live. That's what he means by being ready. He means be persistently living the life that God has called you to live so that when I return, I find you being the people that I've called you to be. Not in like some really uh, negative way, like if you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar, you'll be in trouble, but just that I will know that you're my people. I'll see that you are my people when I return by the lives that I see you living. And this, he tells one more story to kind of bring this out. He says this, verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of the household to give them food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Jesus says, I, I want you to imagine there's a small business owner or a, a homeowner who has a whole staff of uh, servants or um, you know, there's a, uh, parents who have a large family, lots of kids. And uh, this business owner, we'll just use that example, is planning to go away for an extended trip. He doesn't know when he's coming back. His servants don't know when he's going to come back and, or his employees don't know. So what he does is he picks an employee and he puts him in charge of the whole operation. He says, listen, you're, you're in charge now. You run the staff. And uh, when I get back, I just want to see how you're doing. And the owner goes away. And Jesus says this employee is wise and faithful. He's wise because he knows that the, his boss could come back at any moment. And that inspires him to live faithfully, to do the job that the owner has left him to do. And Jesus says, what do you think will happen when the owner returns and finds his business running like a well-oiled machine? 
I'll tell you what, he's going to give that employee a promotion. He's going to make him the office manager. He's going to put him in charge of the whole operation, maybe even make him a partner. There will be a reward for those who live faithful to the task, knowing that the master could return at any time. But then he says this, by contrast, suppose, this is verse 48, that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he is not aware of. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, but suppose that servant isn't wise and faithful. Suppose that servant, because the master has been gone a long time, grows comfortable and complacent and, and lazy. And he starts to think, my master's been gone so long, I don't know if or when he's ever going to come back. And so it doesn't really matter if I do my job. It doesn't really matter if I show up to work. I might as well just go out drinking with my buddies all day. And so he checks in in the office in the morning and in the evening to lay a beating on his fellow employees for not working hard enough. He abuses them and mistreats them. And then he heads off to the pub with his pals for the afternoon. And Jesus says, what will happen when the owner comes back and finds that servant? He says, well, he'll probably have him sawed in two, which is actually even worse than a demotion. Um, back in those days in the Roman Empire, many cities actually had a public official whose main job was to execute servants on demand that had been found unfaithful. Jesus says, those who ignore my instructions, those who don't do what I've instructed them to do in my absence. When I return and find them to be unfaithful, they are going to find out that they miss out on everything that I had planned for them. See, the difference between these two servants was really the perspective on life that they lived with. The one servant was a today person. Right? They believed every single morning when they got out of bed, my master might come back today. The boss might walk back through that door any minute. Could be today. And because he had this today perspective, it inspired him, excuse me, to go to work and to live faithfully to the instructions that he was given. And because the boss returned and found him to be faithful, he was rewarded. The other servant didn't live with the today mentality. He lived with the someday mentality. My boss may return someday. And if my boss returns someday, I'll deal with that when he returns. And he put off or was less than diligent in in doing what he had been commanded to do because he stopped believing that the boss could return at any time. Jesus' point is this. When it comes to your life of faith, you will not know the day or the hour of my return. Jesus could literally return at any moment. He could return before the end of this sermon uh, if he is merciful. Jesus could return at any time. You will never know. 
So he says, in light of that, you can live with a today perspective that wisely anticipates Jesus' return every moment of every day, that inspires you to be faithful to the calling and that will receive the reward when Jesus comes back. Or you could live with the someday mentality. I think there are too many of us who are living with the someday mentality when it comes to our life of faith. I talked to my friend of mine who told me this story about his grandfather. Worked his whole life in the quarry. Worked his fingers to the bone. 35, 40 years. Every day anticipating that someday when I retire, I'll finally be able to live the life that I can enjoy. He retired and within a few short months was diagnosed with colon cancer and, you know, a year or so later was gone. He lived with a someday mentality and he missed out on everything that was there had he just lived a today mentality. And you know people who are doing this. Someday I'll go back and finish my degree and then they spend 40 years in a dead-end job that they hate because they're stuck. Someday, you know, I'll do something about my health. I'll start to eat better and I'll start to exercise. And someday I'll, you know, I'll deal with my lifestyle issues. And someday I'll quit smoking. Someday I'll stop drinking. So one day I'll go uh, to AA or I'll, I'll go to recovery and I'll deal with this addiction. And then, bam, you're diagnosed with diabetes or with, you know, cancer or whatever the case may be. And you miss out on everything because you lived with a someday mentality. Someday I'll start saving money. And then boom, your car blows up and now you're in more debt that you could possibly imagine. You live with the someday mentality and you're going to miss out on everything that life has for you. We're not really talking about eating better or quitting smoking or saving money or whatever else. So those are all great decisions and you should probably all start them today. We're talking about a someday attitude with regards to our faith. Someday I'll get serious about following Jesus. Someday I'll be committed enough. I'll just, I'll show up to worship every week, but that's Someday, someday, I'll get around to reading the Bible. Someday, I'll figure out what life is like if I actually start to talk to God in prayer. Someday, I'll get really involved in the church. Someday, I'll bring my kids so that they can learn moral. Someday, you know, I'll get involved in serving in the anchor causes, serving the poor and the marginalized. Someday, someday, my faith will matter that much to me. But not today. Jesus says, those who live with the someday mentality are going to miss out on everything that Jesus has for them. Instead, he said, don't be a someday person. Be a today person. So any of my friends who told me this story about their grandpa, their dad was the one who helped, you know, administer morphine to his dad in his dying days. And he said, I'll never be that person and made a commitment to living every single day to the full, to not wait until someday. Jesus says, that's how I want you to be. In the wisdom 
of knowing that I could return at any moment in time, be inspired to a life of faithfulness, vigorous, energetic, passionate devotion to loving God and to loving yourself and to loving people, loving the world, to be the person that God has created you to be every moment of every day. So that when Jesus returns, we can experience all for all of eternity the gift of what it means to have been a wise and faithful servant because we lived with a today mentality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to grow comfortable and complacent in faith. It's easy to slip our faith into neutral, to start coasting. And of course, you can only coast when you're going downhill. It's easy to lose sight of the reality that you could return at any moment. And I pray that you would um, allow us to live with the wisdom of anticipating your imminent return every moment of every day, that it would inspire in us a faithfulness to you. And so God, I pray for all the some days in the room. I pray for all the some days who are pushing off, taking you and taking faith and taking life and taking love and taking your kingdom They're pushing off, taking all of that seriously for someday. And I pray, God, that you'd make us today people who live on the brink of eternity, who are energetically anticipating your return and in whom the world is seeing the passionate, energetic devotion to you that would come as a result. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.